Hey, I'm Craig Finn. This is my podcast. I call it That's How I Remember It. Each episode, I have a conversation with one artistic person about the relationship between memory and creativity. I try to figure out how their memory and life experiences affect the stories they tell others, as well as the stories they tell themselves. My guest this week is Eric D. Johnson. Eric's a singer and songwriter. He records and tours under the name The Fruit Bats, and he's also a member of modern folk sort of supergroup Bonnie Light Horseman. I'm a huge fan of both. He's especially one of my favorite singers in modern music. Just a beautiful voice. You can hear it on all his work. The Fruit Bats are right about to release their 10th studio album. It's called A River Running to Your Heart. And I'm lucky enough to have heard it. It's really fantastic. And although Eric's been doing this a long time, I think there's more excitement for his music than ever before, which is great. We talked a little bit about that journey. Eric is kind, funny, and thoughtful, and I'm so psyched that he joined me here. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with The way that I remember it Eric, uh, thanks for joining us. I'm going to start how I start all of them and ask, do you think you have a good memory? You know, I thought I did. I've been having some realizations lately that maybe I don't have as good of a memory as I thought because, you know, I'm kind of hitting those like 20 and 25 year milestones of like records and blah, blah, blah. And like we did even did like a retrospective Fruit Bats thing in which I was like sort of, you know, had to give interviews and then be like, so 20 years, like tell me all about it. And and you're sort of like, I don't remember. The thing that I re- realized I remember the least is how I felt about things at different times. Like who who I was in the past is a confusing, like, a- am I the same person from when I came out of the womb as I am now? Or do I feel totally differently? Have, have I grown or not? I think that's that's always been my big question for memory. As you kind of force yourself to think about these things do you get does it come any clearer can you get any clarity on those he's kind of um it like for example i i came across as because i was doing like you know deep dives on like old recordings and things like that and like i found some like tour diaries speaking of memory i was like these whole tour diaries were like eight days in my life or something where i was like i don't remember a single thing of this right like like at all, like where I'm just saying, telling these very detailed, vivid stories of uh, some of which are interesting, some of which are mundane, where I was just like, I don't remember any of that. That was eight days of my life. It's gone. That's gone in my brain. And then, of course, some things I do remember really well. So is tour stuff something you tend to remember? Yes, kind of. And again, I think it's like things I it was like reading those tour diaries was sort of like uh, corroborating my memories and also sort of like negating some of them, too. Where I was like, oh, that's like not how I remember it at all. But clearly that was what happened because it's a tour diary I wrote at midnight that day. You know, <laughs> I'm really good at like the, the venue stuff. In fact, people are all like in the band. People are because we're just hitting 20 years, too. And people are always like, have we played here before? And I'll say, yeah, you know, you walk in the bars on the left. And I, I know all that. And we played here with this band and this band in 2007. I, I can know that. Lately, well, not lately, but within the past few years, I've been having this dream that there's a venue. And it's like, it doesn't actually exist, I'm pretty sure. But it's on the tip of my tongue, proverbial tongue, that like I'm trying to remember what it is. But I actually don't think it exists. But it's, it's there, just this dream is to haunt me. Can you describe it? Maybe, maybe it does exist, and I'll know. Does it, or does it have a physical description? It's 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 down south, and it's it's in a warm weather place. Because the first thing you do is you pull into a parking lot, and then you go around the structure, and it's actually an outdoor venue. So it's almost like a venue that would be in Austin, Texas. I was going to say it sounds kind of Austiny. Although I had Atlanta in my brain when you first mentioned it, I don't know why. I'm almost positive that it's like ta- tapping into something else because what the deal was is like. We sold this venue out the first time we were there. And then in the dream, no one's showing up for the second time. So it's tied to some other anxieties, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I have that is I have those dreams all the time. <laughs> There's a lot of geography in my dreams and a lot of like show anxiety. It's like when I would wait tables and would have dreams about not 
forgetting to bring the apps to table 20 or something. And now I have like, there's not people at the show or something. But. Yeah. I mean, I still have the, the, I didn't go to class all semester and now it's final time and I'm about to fail, but that's a, that's a classic. That's a, cl it's a classic, but they're there for a reason. I, I have some theories actually, but your memory, how do you think it affects your storytelling and your songwriting? I mean, hugely because I mean, I think like my last three records are kind of all like implicitly about memory and stuff in one way or another. It's like, you know how when you have to like write your press thing up and they're like, what's the story of this? Re and it's and it's like, you know, the the agonizing thing of like, I got to write the story of this record and, and the people are going to ask me about it a thousand times and whatever. Like the last three I've done, I'm like, I think they're all kind of the same. I, it's the same. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like just slight variations on the same story, which is like. One was sort of about my album Gold Past Life was about like fake nostalgia, like sort of the like the misremembering of nostalgia and like sort of the notion like we're all sort of miserable all the time, but we can sort of look back and like change that, you know, like sort of turn that into something beautiful. But and maybe the misery is beautiful. That's one. Gold, I mean, Gold Past yeah. Life speaks to that. I mean, that's a memory yeah. a record. I think the Pet Parade, when that came out, I read that you had gone to a Pet Parade when you were younger. Yeah, and that was more like a memory of like, rather than like the memories of misery, it's sort of, sort of like simpler memories and and like sort of this, like the, the cinema in our brain or something a yeah. little bit. Like, yeah, and then this new record that I made, it's like, I think it's like a slightly different, I'm still even working out what it even means that I did. And I'm like, I think it might be. I, I might have just done the same thing again. So, yeah, it's clearly something I'm, I'm preoccupied. You know, you talk about misery and reinventing um, happy, or, you know, or, or sort of filtering out the bad stuff. Because I, I was thinking about a job I had in my 20s. I worked at American Express Financial Advisors, and I was talking to a friend about it. I was like, you know, I could barely get out of bed to go there a lot of mornings, like barely. But when I look back now at age 51, all I remember the parts that were really funny and sort of joyous, like, you know, hanging out. Uh, do you think, do you think that like our brains do that to us? Yeah, I think so. And it's like, and when you're younger, it's like, everything is kind of cool, I think. But again, it's going back to that thing of like, no, I think I was kind of miserable when I was younger too. I'm probably much happier now. So, um, uh, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I think my, like my twenties, I, I, those were the worst. Those are literally the worst. Like, like people, I, anyone who's having an awesome twenties hats off to you because I felt like I was just, I, I felt like people were trying to say, okay, be an adult now and without kind of letting you be an adult. And it was all just sort of frustrating and desperate. Yeah. I was probably pretty frustrated in my twenties too. I think you and I are both Midwestern people, like yeah. a certain kind of Midwestiness that, I've often grappled with, and I know you do, because it's like, I feel like it's an undercurrent in all your music, too, and, and probably mine, too, and it from a slightly different angle. But yeah, I was there in the 20s. It was just cold. Like, it was winter every day. I don't know why. Like, I don't remember the summer yeah. at all. And um, <laughs> it was winter every day, but like, and I was just like chasing girls and frustrated all the time about that in some way. But I was also on tour, and tour was like six people in a motel six every night and like and chain smoking and stuff but like it all kind of it's all very romantic to me too like through the through the misty lens you know i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean like uh i i remember waiting for the bus in my 20s to go to work and minneapolis where i lived was very cold and very flat and not only could you see when the bus was coming from a long ways away you could see when the bus wasn't coming so you're yeah. like Oh, it's not even within ten blocks of here. This is cold, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's my memory of being twenty six or whatever. Well, let's go. Let's go way back. Do you have early memories of music? Yes, I actually I have a theory that I ha actually have like a womb memory of of Boston, the first Boston record, which is still like I can't even really hear that record without that record. To me, is like the, one of the most mystical texts in history like like almost like a religious text I, I don't i'm unable to hear that without uh feeling some kind of deep cellular memory inside of it and i'm fair i was born in 1976 that was like i think the biggest record of 1976 and and also my parents really liked it like and sort of had that record so it was probably just i feel like that record was just on all the time and it possibly 
like was an in the womb listening experience for me as well. So yeah, I that that first Boston record, my family was just like a top forty radio people. So like just anything from the radio from nineteen seventy six to nineteen eighty nine or something, and then and then I veered off into being like, oh, and I'd get tapes and you know get into quote quote unquote deep cut. You start to develop your own taste outside of what your parents are listening to. But from, yeah, the radio from 1976 to 1989 is like, that's that's cellular for me. Like, were your parents musicians? No. No, but they were music fans. They were music fans, interested in music. My mom's a really good singer. My dad played like a little bit of guitar. And then they got divorced, you know, like when I was pretty young. And But yeah, so it was like, but yeah, the radio was always on and it was top 40 radio in the 80s. Are there eras like that you're like when you go to like a book, movie, whatever music that that you're drawn to? I mean, is that is that one? Is are the seventies interesting to you for that reason? Yeah, I mean, clearly the seventies are pervasive for me. I have a, like a weird theory that like your birth year is like a deep year, it, it, and it might kind of speak to the because it's like now there's like a lot of these kind of younger. Gen Z type bands are like super 90s sounding. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, it makes sense. Like that, you know, that they're like babies of babies of the Nirvana era or something. Like I'm I'm that way with like Boston and like Aerosmith or something. But um, and not that my music sounds like Boston or Aerosmith, but but like, yes, the 70s are also just the the growth of music from 1969 to like 1981 and movies and stuff too. I think like pop culture, it was just like you know, not to get all like American studies on it, but like it was uh, the like paradigm shift, like and just artistic shift from one end of that decade to the other is like pretty awesome. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've said this in other interviews I've done on this show, but like I'm really obsessed. I was born in 71 and that whole Nixon era is super interesting to me because I think that's when I was forming memories as a kid. So yeah. when I go and see a movie that's like from 1974, it's verifying something to me that like, oh, buildings did look like that. We yeah. dressed like that, you know? Yeah. And that was, that's, that's very fascinating to me. And that's, that's sort of, I wonder if we all do that. But I mean, for instance, I'm not the, probably the first one to bring this up. I know I'm not, but there's sort of a seventies, I guess, AM gold kind of feeling in a lot, a lot of, I think in a lot of your work and the Bee Gees come up to me a lot because they both did the folk stuff, you know, Massachusetts to love somebody. And then stuff that's obviously very groovy. Is that, is that a band that was, in your purview at that time? Yes. And and even more so now, like I've come to really appreciate them. But yeah, I think I just like have a similar vocal range to them. And like, and yeah, I like they're kind of like, it's like a sort of a, almost like a bonehead sensibility, like structurally. Um, it's just like super out front and like really, um, like I like ABBA for the same way too. And it's disco, but it's like um, kind of folk music too. And like, it's like, uh, um, yeah. I, um, but it was, I almost had to come around to the Bee Gees, like after everybody started telling me I sound like the, and cause I always liked them too, but I'm just like, I mean, those, those singles are I, kind of unstoppably great. And then I like Barry as a writer too, like, um, some of the other stuff he wrote, like, yeah, I like that. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's very melancholy too. Like on and the underbelly is very melancholy, but it's like, um, very like, out front back beats and yeah i don't i don't know what it is about all of that as a combination that speaks to me but it it does for some well, reason when you talk about growth in that time of music i mean i think like on one level i say wow it's a big jump from we are going back to massachusetts to jive talking or whatever yeah but at the same time as i get older i can kind of see how it moves you know yeah and that was probably only like nine years or something. Like it, it wasn't really that long. Like in the yeah, but yeah. It, but it's but it's still it's all very musical and and it, and and its core it's it's in some way similar and there's harmonies. Um, yeah, and, I, and I've asked a lot of people, but is there? Are you someone when you listen to music? Are there records, artists, whatever that sound better in in certain seasons to you? Oh yeah, every year I have to I have to like I have to sort of like. Uh, astral weeks is the spring just can't not be it just seems like it should be i think like because it's always springtime in ireland or something like just that that is like everything is always kind of like green and and wet there or something but like that's just a very springtime record and then any kind of like british 
folk rock that I love is autumnal. Like Nick, like nothing is more autumnal than like a Nick Drake record. Like I'm just like, how would you even fathom not associating that with that? But like I've had other people be like, really? No way. Like, and someone, uh, yeah, Mike from His Golden Messenger was like, no, Astral Weeks is autumn record. And I was like, it kind of could be, but um, I like the sho- I like the shoulder seasons music. I think, but I like sort of cool weather music, not not warm or cold. Like I sort of like spring, spring and fall are my seasons that like speak to me. I think right. That's yeah. That's interesting. I I mean I I'm right there. Have you read the the um, Ryan Walsh book on Astro Weeks? The, the no, Boston book. It's on my. It's kind of on my list though. Actually, yeah, I really want to. It's it's really good and uh, uh, gave me new uh, new appreciation. Um, but I mean. Fall and spring, those are kind of uh, two sides of the same coin, right? It's 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 an in-between. And- mm-hmm. I think from the Midwest, it's like those are the most – I mean, in, obviously summer in the Midwest, too, is great, and, and winter is brutal and everything. Yeah, Spr- I, I just like spring best. I think from the Midwest, it's like – it's the like, oh, here it comes. You know? I always like, felt like in Minneapolis yeah. we didn't have spring, or it was like it was like a week. Yeah, same within Chicago. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it was fleeting where we're fall, you know, but I don't know. I think I like, I think I like if I had to choose my favorite records are fall records, but it's my favorite season too. But I, I guess I, but I definitely, the one thing summer since I moved to the city is like electric jazz. Oh yeah. Something with like, you know, like you kind of feel like with the, with the windows open and the, the cars outside electric miles Davis, that's, that's really good summer music for me that I would never that I really don't put on in other times of the year, to be honest. Bitches Brew or something is very like New York. So it would feel like some kind of like very like sultry and sumptuous like New York summer only at night. Like that record can't possibly be played in the day, but yeah. like a warm New York City like summer night. Yeah, it's like it's, and yeah. then you decide to go out and it's already midnight. You know, it's yeah. like stepping out on the street. So curious about your process. When you write, when you said to write a song, do you do it? with just one instrument and one voice or do you you know do you start like to open up pro tools start messing around that kind of thing pro tools all the way and and that's and that's some kind of something that i would love to i say this all the time i'm like i'm ready to not do that anymore i'm ready to be like the guy who just goes with the acoustic guitar Mm-hmm. into the park or something and write the song. And every every once in a great while I can do that. But I think it is the Bee Gees ABBA thing. Like I have this, um, I have a little bit of a preoccupation with like how um, vocals and like uh, BPM live with each other a little bit. Like how, like, because um, really I'm trying to make songwriter music, but it's kind of poppy, you know? So like I'm trying to like sort of fool people into like listening to my diary or whatever, but like, uh, but have it be in this kind of like package. So it's a lot about like how, how I can spit these lyrics out or at least this initial idea of lyrics, like sort of lay down a bed for it. So it works really well for me with, uh, with starting off with like a drum machine or even just some, yeah. But do you have the lyrics then already? No, but I'll have like, I'll have three or four anchors you know, that that are either like conceptual or just like are sounds that I like or something. And and then, yeah, it kind of goes, I build around that. But I want, because I, I had, was wondering, because more and more I think people I know are, do it that way, you know, start opening up a file, open up a Pro Tools or whatever file and then start moving things around or playing with sounds. And, and I wonder if like words, I wonder if we're more likely to put words to, to the music then um, that, you know, to, 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 to match the, the feel of the music rather than write music to the feel of the words. Is that, do you, do you think that's a thing or do you, in your case anyways? I mean, it, w- it probably was, I was, um, so I was kind of like, I was into songwriter music early, but then in classic rock and things like that. But I was like, then I discovered indie rock which seemed was like such a palpable way to make music. It felt at the time in like the mid nineties, I was just like, I can't, I liked the Grateful Dead and stuff, but I was like, I don't know how to like play guitar like that. Or like, how would you even do that? You know, like, or, or even just like anything that I liked. And then I started getting into like pavement and, mm-hmm. and bands like that. And, and, uh, and even like replacements and stuff, like, especially the more songwriterly aspects of, them on like Tim and let it be and stuff. And I was just like, Oh, this is like, 
I could do that. Um, but besides the replacements, like things like pavement was like the the um, the lyrics were like paint swatches, you know, like they they were they were sort of part of the, the I call it like the music of of words, you know, like it was like they were pretty. Um, and I don't know, you'd have to ask Steve Malcolmus because I, I don't really know like what's in his heart, but like it always felt like there was it was a little detached, like yeah, um, like and whether that was like because he's a detached person or whether it was just like, that's just how I write. And I just want you to hear these cool words with my cool music. So I started off like writing like that because I was like, that's what's, that was just like who was influencing me. And then later I was like, Oh, I think I'm a professional songwriter now. And (laughs) that I can start telling my life that people might care about like my life. I also had, yeah, there was probably some Midwestern uh, like, uh, Scando Midwestern, uh, like don't stick out too much. So it was kind of good to like, uh, mask your feelings in right. like, uh, sort of oblique, uh, little weird things. And then, yeah. And then eventually I was just like, Oh, I could start. So I, I opened up to now everything is like deeply meaningful that I write, yeah. but, um, it took me a really long time. I don't think I just answered that question at all. No, I, I no, but I think that was right. I think that's I think that I like the answer better than I like the question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but no, okay. So, but on that, you're a pro- you're a prolific worker. You've got tons. Like, look back around here. This is the tenth Fruit Beth album. Yeah, as well as other, you know, other stuff. What? How does a record start for you? Like, is it when you have enough songs? It's when you have a release date. You know, what 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 says what? You know, is it is it? I've got ten songs. It's a record, or what? When does it begin? When does it I end? Never, I never used. to to be prolific, my prolificness has, I think, kind of come a little bit with, like, just confidence and being, like, I think I'm a better, like, I, I feel like um, I'm, like, more confident finishing songs. I'm just just better at it now, and thereby I can be more prolific. Um, I was kind of a half-asser for a long time, just definitely, like, a bad student, not finishing my homework and, like, um, but, um, yeah, I think it uh, it's not, I don't... Uh, I do love to have a little bit of a deadline. That's kind of nice to have a, where you're just like, I'm on a record label and <laughs> there's a release schedule. There's, there's something kind of nice about that. You know, um, it's like a making the donuts kind of, yeah. yeah. Where you're just like, Hey, I got to do this. Cause they're giving me money to do it and I got to do it. And it's, isn't this fucking cool that this is my job, but like, um, yeah, but I, I also am a collage songwriter. So everything is like, I'm always kind of, I'm not like, like the aforementioned, like sit down and write a song. Yes, of course I do that. They have to kind of start somewhere, but it's a lot of stuff is like out in the ether for like a long time. Uh, there's even a a line on this first, uh, on this new record that I made. It's a line. That's actually the title of the song too. That's a lyric that I wrote down in the year 2000. So it's been <laughs> hanging out for 23 years and like finally just got released, you know, like, but it's like I a love. line that I had in a notebook a long time ago that I just has like lived in my head for a quarter century and finally finally got set free so um yeah a lot of stuff is like yeah some some stuff is like at this point like there's some like old stuff making its way in there too i love i love that uh i love that makes me like feel really good that that line whatever you wrote down 23 years ago is now a song that makes that gives me hope for a lot of my notebooks (laughs) i mean it's kind of a song about that moment like when I wrote it down too. So it's sort of like, I, it's not just like, I, I finally got that line and it has nothing to do what, with it. It's what, like, what song like, is it? Uh, it's called see the world by night. And um, it was like, I wrote it. It was like my first big tour that I ever did. And like where we were like, you know, old days of touring. And it was like before smartphone, you know, all the, whatever, all the old stuff. And we were like, we drove a lot at night, like, because, and it's just like, where you like, there wasn't like hotels.com or anything like that. You would just kind of go and like drive around to try to find like a super eight or something. And like just the weird stuff. And then just like sitting in the back of a van a lot and just being like, I hadn't really traveled a lot. We were pretty like, we didn't really travel in my family. I hadn't, I barely left the Midwest really. And, um, and just kind of, um, being like, Oh, we're in Texas or something right now. I guess this is what Texas looks like. It was just sort of like nighttime. So I, I just wrote down, see the world by night. It felt like, a like a postcard <laughs> that you would <laughs> yeah. get or something where I was just like this. So this is what this, this is what this touring thing is. It's just sort of like going to Denny's at 
at at one o'clock in the morning or something. We we were very like I felt like touring was much more nocturnal back then. My body could probably handle that better. When you're younger, yeah. I, I felt that way. And now I'm like, we're not driving after the show. We have to oh, like check not. into the no. hotel before the show. Hell yeah. You know? like, we can't <laughs> yeah. do that now. No, you know, I was just getting back to something that I was like, wrote down that, you know, cause I was at, thinking about the release date. Um, and you know, there was a time way back when probably when I was in lifter polar, I'd be like, no, a record's not ready until it's, you know, it's ready. You have to be inspired and make this beautiful thing. And then you get a release date and you put it out. But I was reading Rob Sheffield's book about the Beatles and it was like Revolver was like the creation of Revolver was like, hey, we need product by Christmas. Yeah. And, you know, Paul was like, I got three songs. John said, I got three songs. And, you know, and then all of a sudden they put together and it wasn't this mystical, um, you know, there was a commercial aspect to it. And that really allowed not I, mean, I already start to reframe, but like having these deadlines is a really good thing as an artist sometimes. Yeah, and that was the beauty of the get back. That, did you see the Peter Jackson yeah, get? Yeah. I mean, that was the beauty of the uh, like the utter mundanity of it. Too. And that it, there was kind of some deadlines there too, but where it was just like, again, it was yeah. The, we think these Beatles songs were um, like an angel riding a unicorn flew down from the sky and like just blessed us with them. And it's like no, it's just like four blokes who um, kind of signed on to do this thing, and they were like, oh yeah, we gotta yeah. It was, um, and I don't mean to frame it in like these kind of stark pragmatic terms either like it's like there is there is magic too we we know that but like um yeah i mean i i think one of the things i've learned as a as i get older and have way more confidence and i think we were kind of saying this earlier is that i can start out if i was like to say all right i'm gonna start making a record today with nothing and through the work and putting it on a schedule i'll create something you know, yeah. and, and I feel confident that I can do that, you know, and I've done it cause I've done it before. And, um, that's, that's sort of what we watch the Beatles do. Like, okay, yeah. well we have to have something by this date. And that was, that's really brilliant. Yeah. And the Beatles brilliance was that they made all the right decisions too. Like when, so when you watch that and it's like, George kind of plays this weird guitar lick on get back first. And I was like, Oh, that doesn't sound good. George, don't do that. And then I realized like, Oh, yeah, of course he didn't do that. That's not uh, that's yeah. Not on the song. They knew they knew what to edit. Um, yeah. So so get you know uh, uh, you're just talking about the touring. Um, the motion in in general seems to be part of this record. The first song you talk about the shark that never stopped swimming. You mentioned you know the saw the world at night from the backseat of a van. Um, does this kind of motion itself inspire you? Like you you've toured a lot in the last few years. Does, does, you know, is, is writing songs in some way is like marking your place as you move through the world? Is that, is that some part of it? Yeah, I love geography. It was like you were talking about the earlier, earlier when you were talking about the dream location of the, the, like the mysterious rock club in your dream. Like, I just, I love that kind of stuff. Like I, I'm always dreaming about stuff that's like a place that's like over there or something yeah. like that and i think it again it may may totally come from the like not traveling a lot as a kid so and then just finally like getting out there and being like oh my god this is like um you know just uh yeah like i mean and it's like it's a tale as old as time too like odysseys and and like or jack kerouac on the road and stuff like that it's like going out and seeing other places and um they don't even have to be like exotic but yeah it's just like those weird yeah, I remember when when I was in Lifter Puller, I got at, towards the end, I got my first cell phone, and it didn't really work that well. But at the same time, I remember being like, "I don't think I ever have to go home. Like, like I can just keep doing this, right? People can get a hold of me now." And yeah. um, and that was like really exciting and freeing. And I'm, um, and 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 again, as a younger person, having not seen a lot of things. You know, to have that and also be moving through New Mexico for the first time was like is is incredible feeling. Yeah, yeah, I was just like totally blown away by that. I, I yeah, I still just enjoy it. Like, still, um, and very much like, uh, yeah. There's like there's certain drives that I've done like a trillion times that just occupy some kind of space in my head. It's just like that that more or less very boring drive between L.A. and the Bay Area on on Interstate Five or something. Just like always makes its way into my dreams and kind of in my songs mm -hmm. sometimes too. And it, again, it's like relatively mundane in a way, but like I'm, there's some kind of meaning that I'm trying to extract from it too. I, I felt like when I, um, 
you know, we did bus tours for a long time and I kind of did a solo tour and got back in the van at some point and drove driving between Seattle and Portland was like, I really miss this drive. Screw this bus touring. You miss like how you enter a city sometime is really grounding, you know, to like drive into Seattle, drive into Portland and say, rather than just wake up in the whatever part of the city the club is in. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account, or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And just the the, the emergence of a skyline or something like that used to like really thrill me even if it was and it's like the towns where you're like oh hartford connecticut has a skyline or something you know like where there's there's something kind of like where you're just like oh this is like a place that sort of occupy uh, occupies space on a horizon um uh but like um and actually it's funny you say about the van versus bus thing because fruit bats were actually doing our very first bus tour ever after 22 years on the road in a van um we were doing the spring tours our very first bus tour but i'm kind of like i was like oh, i might miss i'm gonna miss some of those kind of things but i've done bus tours before but so this is not my first ever but but not with this band there's benefits to both i find the bus can make me a little depressed just because my need for sunlight yeah. is um high um so i have to watch myself on the bus but there's obviously benefits to both that you know i was thinking about the pet parade i believe you recorded that with josh kaufman who's a co-collaborator of mine as well by remote, right? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So in this sense, is is there there's a sense of this record about sort of the world opening up again to me when I hear that. Do you do you feel that? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's like because actually I wrote that was like March 2020 that I like wrote and recorded that. So it might have been like the opposite, or maybe it was just like wishful thinking of the world opening up. But um Did, on this, some of those, no, but on yeah. this record, on, on, oh, on, on this record, oh yeah. yes, yes, on the new one. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it is in like kind of a tentative way. And I certainly didn't want to like, part of me is like, sort of don't want to write some kind of topical thing either, but I think it was just like totally in there. Like, and you know, the classic thing when you write something and then you kind of like zoom back after writing and you're like, Oh yeah, that's clearly what that's clearly on my brain right now. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, Joe, Joan Didion said you know, the classic quote is we write to, you know, figure out, to find out what we're thinking. Yeah, And I, I, that absolutely happens to me when I write, you know, if I write a batch of 12 songs, I'll go back and be like, oh, they're all about, you know, being lonely or something like that. And then you're like, am I lonely? You know, you teach us something about yourself sometimes. I don't, do you feel that way? Yeah, my, my songs are therapy for myself. And like, I think I do a nice compliment I get from people who are like fans of mine is that my music is comforting in some way. And I find my music to be riddled with anxiety, strangely enough. But like, um, maybe, yeah, there's songs where it's like I'm trying to soothe myself of that anxiety. And I'm glad that people sort of, they hear the comforting side of it. It's like a, yeah, it's like a filtration of my anxiety. And thereby, I think, comforting to people, which is nice. Well, if you say you're anxious, if you, you know, are, are in any way saying you're anxious or I feel like in my saddest songs too, like I'm saying like that I suffer. And then people say, hey, I suffer too. Yeah. And you kind of have that, well, maybe to be, that's to be human. And since we're both human, maybe we all have that. And that makes everyone feel hopefully a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, one thing, it, it, speaking of topical, I mean, there's a, there's a fair amount of home on this record, the, the concept of home. And I, the, the song Waking Up in Los Angeles, I believe you've moved in and out of L.A. in recent years. Um, Moving is at its best um, traumatic, but I mean, and there's uh, and we've talked that there's this sense of motion. Does this does does that move play a part in this record, or does that kind of like transition? 
I'm sure it did. I mean, like, yeah, it's all just like whatever, whatever's happening on my record is like essentially like it's a diary of the past two yeah. years. So, um, and whether that's done in an anim- I'm singing in an enigmatic way. This is that song lyrically was like the first song ever where I um wrote a disclaimer. Like there were the first verses like a disclaimer yeah, or, yeah. where I'm I'm actually like <laughs> directly speaking to the audience and being like, Hey, I'm gonna sing about this specific place, but I just want you to like you could plug in your own uh your own place or vibe if you want into the, the chorus, however however you feel. So um yeah. And um and also because Los Angeles is such a specific place with a specific vibe that is like, uh, some people love it, some people don't like it, some people mm-hmm. never been there. So I was kind of like, um, this isn't like, I love LA, you know, like, but but hopefully they'll like start playing it at Dodgers games or something like that. That would be fun. You, yeah, hopefully for, yeah, I hope, I hope so for you too. I mean, I think if you're doing your job, like when you're using these specific examples, you're hopefully communicating something that's universal. You know, I mean, hopefully the listener can always... Yeah, but I think it's like they're all diary entries that are like then hopefully through the through the normal filtration system they become they become universal for people. But that was one where I was like, I thought it would be kind of funny to to actually like talk about the writing process at the top of that. Which yeah, is like, it's, it's yeah. a great it's a great. I don't know. I can't think of another song that really does that, which is a really cool thing. Um, yeah. We used to live here. I mean, obviously, that's like another kind of a memory song. And it plays, you know, both memory and home. And you mentioned, like, we were the perfect age and the rent was so low, which I take to mean that circumstances can matter as much as a physical or geographical place. Um, Did this song, does this song correspond to an actual time or place? Or is that, are you sort of taking that into the abstract? Lightly? No, it does lightly correspond to um a house in portland that my wife and i lived in for eight years which is the actually the longest i ever lived it we moved around a ton as a kid so again i think that's like some of that there's a lot of like geography in my dreams because i lived in like a different house every year mm-hmm. like pretty much until i was like actually because then then i was like out of the house and like living with girlfriends in chicago and then breaking uh, like i lived in like so many places like the amount of addresses i've had is like insane but um so that was like um that's kind of like you know when you like lived in a place a long time and then you move out and everything's all packed up and you you close like the classic super wistful like you close the door and you like look and you're like i'll never be here again and my whole life was here so it's it's just it's sort of that and it's also a little bit like when you drive by an old house or something like that. So it's a pretty like more kind of simple and universal song. We've all more or less gone through that unless you lived in the same house your whole life. I, I think I sort of thought about it in the sense of like, you know, when when people want to return to things and, uh, you know, some people, sometimes you meet people on, you know, when you're playing shows and they're like, oh, you got to, you got to come back with this band. You got to play this show, this, you know, this venue again. Because I saw you guys there in 2006 and it was like the greatest night. And you're like, I'm always kind of like, yeah, well, we could do that, but you won't be 23 again. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and that was a Tuesday night and we went on at 10, 1030 and you drank nine beers. Yeah. Like you can't do that this time. Is it going to be the same? It's not. That is a little bit that too. It's also like, I like the play on words of the title is like, we used to live like sort of like we used to live a life. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, or something like that. Like where it's just like, um, are are we are we living a life now? So yeah, we used to live, man. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I, so, we used to live. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I yeah. love that actually. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know, I, I know you taught. Um. You taught at the old school, old town school of folk. Is that right? Yeah. 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 In Chicago, and and your other band, um, Bonnie Light Horseman, um, with Josh and and NAS. Um. Which, by the way, I saw your show in December at the music hall. It was incredible and uh we've turned it, into a rock band <laughs> it, it was sounded so good like yeah it was um really spectacular and if anyone's listening and uh gets a chance to see the show incredible but it takes on traditional folk songs and forms which you know the relationship with folk music definitely fits into the memory themes of this podcast do you feel like a responsibility of this kind of tradition as you pass down these songs melodies etc um no <laughs> <laughs> and I think well, y- yes and no. Like we we've sort of talked a lot about it, where it's like these. Um, Aeneas has like some quote, and now I've, I've lost who the quote is attributed to, but it's um, it's like these songs are 
are like can't be broken or something like there's there's so because when you when you hand them down they're gonna change no matter what and yet somehow like they're still gonna survive in one form or another so um and especially since our band is like we're not like a traditional folk band like i i want us to we occasionally like uh i feel like sometimes there's maybe been and i try not to read the comments but occasionally we're like this is like some stodgy old folk person is like what the hell is this because it's definitely not right hyper trad you know like um so i almost like i think it would be so fun to be like a you know bob dylan plugging in kind of like really piss some people off but like i don't i don't think we're quite there but but like um yeah i think like we're, we're clearly like um we're respecting i mean we're, we've we've done enough like we built a whole record around those songs so obviously we we love and respect them, but uh, but yeah, we're just kind of like allowing them to the continue of them, uh, the continuum of them to just kind of like take on its own weird new form. Yeah. I hadn't thought, I hadn't really thought about it, and then you just until you just said this sort of stodgy folk thing. But occasionally, when I've wandered into folk things, it's been very polite, and I, I think you guys do bring a, an indie. I don't know what some other sensibility to the performance that meets me. A little closer to where I live. Um, Me too. And we it's funny, it's like we just toured over in the UK and it was my first time kind of seeing it was a bit of a clash of those audiences a few nights, like even like visibly, like um, but I like it. It's like for me, it's like um like fruit bats audiences, which are like bigger than they've ever been. And and I don't know if you find this with hold steady audiences too, where it's just like you're starting to play big enough places and it's like a big rock show event, and you're like I'm not going to really have the type of control over this audience that I used to when, when I was playing folkier, quieter things. And, and you have to sort of like relinquish that a little bit and be like, we're just all in this big, crazy room and like, everybody's going to have a good time. Year, years um, ago, we played the first Hold Steady Seated show. And, you know, that had, you bought a ticket and you were assigned a seat and it was at the Orpheum and, um, or no, not the uh, State Theater in Minneapolis. And I came out on stage and I realized that craziest the most fun fans were not going to be seated up front um they're going to be seated randomly wherever they bought their ticket and most likely my theory is they probably aren't the people that are most likely on top of it you know so all of a sudden you your your best fans and our 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 kind of most exuberant fans at that show were in the back and it really threw me it was hard to perform that way and i i think that is true i mean in a room of 200 300 400 people you could talk to almost everyone. Yeah, I came up also in the era of like our, the early Fruit Bats tours. We were kind of like this very shambolic, folky band. Still kind of even, I was just still trying to find my footing of like who I was. As far, I was not like a preternatural front person. Like my front person experience was from teaching classes at the Old Town School. That was kind of like my, which was like, 20 people and like I, I I didn't come from a punk background either you know so I wasn't like I didn't wasn't like tempered in that yet kind of experience and then like our first tours were opening for bands like Modest Mouse and stuff who were like inviting like who liked us you know and they were like oh we like this band we'll have them open for us and then their audiences hated us and uh and like we got booed all the time and like get off the stick, you know, just the worst stuff. And that was like my first like few years of touring was kind of that. And I was just like, oh, that's just what playing is. You know, like I didn't <laughs> I didn't and um and it's funny playing Bonnie the Horseman because Aeneas came from like this very nurturing folk scene too, which is like and it's quiet every night. And like so we were so um I don't know where I'm going with this, but but it's basically the notion of like there's not a perfect audience, and every audience is a unique organism. Like this this group of however many people are never going to be have never been in this room together, mingling their energy, and they never probably won't ever again. Like there's just not if you're at a 900 cap venue, there are 900. That's a combination of 900 people who are completely new to one another. You know, that's I mean I see that yeah. all the time at whole steady shows where there's you know sometimes a guy who's being a little more exuberant or maybe like annoying a few people around him but he'll be doing it with a huge smile on his face like he's having a really good time he's not doing it aggressively but you know he may be like and and you're like trying to negotiate that place well i want that guy to have fun but i also don't want him to you know push anyone um 
so yeah, it, 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 you, you get that many people around that they have to figure it has to be figured out and hopefully it will. And sometimes it's magic, you know, like sometimes it's like, and you're just kind of like, it doesn't have anything to do with the, you know, where you're just like, oh man, Vancouver audiences are the, you know, like it's not necessarily like I say Vancouver because I had two shows in a row in Vancouver. One was a nightmare <laughs> and, and really good and like a good turnout and everything too. But like some really weird shit happened with some like fans and like a guy had to get kicked out and it was like all this weird stuff. And then weirdly the next show in Vancouver was maybe the best show I've ever played in my life. You know, like to a completely thing. There had to be the same people were there. Like, you know, it, two it, shows with yeah, fans it's weird. a year you, and a half You ascribe apart. it to, you know, whatever city, but it, yeah. it really does. It, it, it There's it no matter. logic to it. No, it's like, it's just a different, like each, uh, it's a different organism every night. So, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I have like one more question is, it, um, by my count, well, this is the tenth fruit Pets record, and it from the outside looking in, it feels like it's really at a high right now. Um, there's a ton of excitement around the band, around the new record, and there's one way of looking at it when I look back on all the things you did, and I look back in your discography, and um, you worked hard on this project for twenty years, and everything's led to this moment. But you know, you live in L.A. If you were writing a Hollywood version of this. Would you be able to position something as kind of the breaking point, like you know, end of Act One, like this, this, this is the thing that 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 really did it, or is it all just uh, um, leading up to this moment, sort of? I I don't know. Like there, there's definitely like I got a, had a few good breaks, you know, like um, especially in the past, like eight years or something like that. Like I sort of stopped doing the band for a while, and then I started it up again, and and um. We did this really great tour with My Morning Jacket that was like, it's like, you know, when your manager is like, you should open for such and such band, it'll be really good. And it's like, that never is the case. It's like, or it's always like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It was a very like breakthrough tour where we were like, did like three weeks playing in front of like the perfect audience for us. And um, that that was a big moment. It was just like a couple of big moments like of luck, but, um, and never have had like the huge moment or anything either. It's been, um, you know, lots of uh, medium-sized moments that kind of, especially in the past eight years, but I think I just have hung around long enough, you know? Well, Humbug, Humbug Mountain Song has 60 million Spotify plays. I mean, that's a, a hit on some on some level. Yeah, I think at some point it's going to be like gold. Like like there's some kind of weird streaming metric that yeah. it eventually like it will go gold. Um but that was just like super people-powered song too. Like there was it wasn't like in a movie or anything like that. I think people just liked that song and Tom Monahan who produced it. Um I think he just he heard something in it. Like I remember the demo of that was kind of different and he's like He's like, this song's kind of a banger. Like, he he really, like, he worked on those drums. Like, it really, he he knew that song was going to kind of, like, explode out of some speakers at some point, so. That's that's amazing. You know, and I, I uh, when I had Nick Lowe on the, on the podcast, I, we talked about peace, love, and understanding. And he I, he was like, you know, when I wrote it, it was just a song. Um, but then I heard Elvis Costello do it, and I was like, oh, it's a hit. Yeah. Um, and, and that it's, it's nice to hear someone says, Hey, that early on, that this is special. And, and yeah. And, um, how about, how about, um, you did MD for, um, the shins, um, right. W were you music director in that or you toured? More or that? No, I don't think, I don't think I was ever officially the MD, but yeah, I was like the, I was sort of, um, I wouldn't even say I was that, but yes, I toured with them and was like, I, I was, I was able to weigh in on things with that band. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I mean, that's, that's a, at, at, at the time, a bigger band than the Fruit Bats was, was that, yeah. uh, is that something that affected you in some way or, or, or taught you things or. Oh, big time. I mean, we were friends from way back. So we had kind of all started at the same time and like, um, you know, just kind of one of those classic things where it's just like, you're all friends and sort of like playing the same stages. And then, then one friend goes cuckoo caca yeah. into the stratosphere and it, it really was too like at, at the that there was like that moment was like really got wild with that band it was really fun and i got kind of got invited along for the ride and it was just like i mean it's it was just great playing that music every night because it's amazing music and everything and like really like 
pretty iconic at this point. Um, and then also it was like cool because <laughs> it was like I got to do all this like bucket list shit, you know, like that was like I had never done any of that. You know, I got to go like even further out into the world than I'd ever gone and and play on Saturday Night Live and just, you know, all the kind of stuff where it's just like, well, I did that, you know, like the just the dumb check some stuff off stuff. Um, and, you know, it was on someone else's uh, <laughs> writing on the back of someone else's incredible songwriting talent. But it was still really, really fun. Like, did you yeah. were, were you able to take some of like the touring stuff and put it to the fruit baths? I mean, like like there's a certain level of that. Some of that stuff that's when I saw it was really helpful to me. In yeah, absolutely. I came I came I basically came out the other side of that, which that was kind of like right in the, I had, um, you know, I'd been sort of doing fruit bats and stuff at that point for like six or seven years, um, which felt like an incredibly long time at that moment where I was just like, I'm an old grizzled guy, you know, and I was like 30 or something. But, um, (laughs) but I, you know, and just thinking like my career was like ancient at that point. And then kind of coming out the other side and just being like, I often refer to it as proof of concept. And it was just the things even like, I had learned things just even about like small touring, like, you know, the decade prior. But yeah, it was just sort of saying like, oh, I think that um, I want to do this forever, you know, because just kind of seeing like, and I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily think like, I want to get exactly to this point, which I still never have. Um, But you know, there was no going back. From there, right. after that, I was just sort of like, "Well, this is like what I do now. Like, I've, I've kind of I've seen the seen the top of the mountain, and <laughs> I'd like to hang around the fringes of that mountain now as much as I can." Right on, right on. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Eric. Um, yeah, thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it. It was super fun, and the record's amazing. Congratulations on that. A river running to your heart. All right, there you have it. A few weeks after we recorded this episode, Eric and I were both part of an event called the Piano Recital, which was at Carnegie Hall. I got to see him perform a couple songs there, which were sublime. And I really liked what he said about every audience being a unique organism. I've been thinking a lot about that. I think it's true. Massive thanks to Eric D. Johnson for joining me on this episode. I really enjoyed it. Thanks also to you for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in and the feedback you've been sharing online and when I see people in person. I'll be out and about a lot in the coming months. Uh, The Hold Steady will be in Portland, Oregon in late April in Boston in mid-May with Dinosaur Jr., in Austin in early June with the Mountain Goats, and all through the year. You can check all the dates at theholdsteady.net. I'm also playing solo in a songwriter's round at the inaugural Sing Us Home Fest in the Philly area. That one's May 5th. I hope to see you somewhere. Uh, in the meantime, stay positive, and thanks for tuning in to That's How I Remember It.